Thanks for listening to this podcast from Walks Around Britain. For more information, our terms of use and to click through to see the show notes on our blog with photographs, videos and links to related sites, please visit walksaroundbritain.co.uk. On the 19th edition of the Walks Around Britain podcast, Sue Dennis tells us about this year's Isle of Man Walking Festival, which celebrates its 10th anniversary. We have a kind of ladybird book's guide to GPS. And... So, I guess I did dedicate three years of my life to K2 and finally climbing. I hadn't intended to do all 14 8,000ers then. Um, I'd only done a couple. Alan Hinks drops by to talk about his new book. Hello, and you're very welcome to the 19th edition of the Walks Around Britain podcast. I'm Andrew White, and I'm your walking guide through the next 30 minutes of walking and outdoor chat on the podcast. And this is the first edition of 2014, so on behalf of the whole team here, I'd like to wish you a very happy new year. Now, if you're thinking of new places to go walking in 2014, then the Isle of Man should be towards the top of the list. In fact, there's an interesting article in January's Countryfile magazine about the Isle of Man, written by some Yorkshireman who thinks it's one of the best places in the British Isles to go walking. And who am I to argue? And a great time to go is the annual Walking Festival in May, which celebrates its 10th anniversary in 2014. So the last time I was across the water filming on the island, I wanted to know more about 2014's Walking Festival from organiser Sue Dennis of Lots of Legs Walking Holidays. Right, so Sue, tell us about where we are at the moment then. We're on a beach at the base of Dune Glen. Uh, It's extremely deserted, very, very beautiful, surrounded by beautiful rock structures and pebbles, nothing else at all. So tell me about how you got involved in walking on the island. I've always enjoyed walking. I have lots of long-distance walking holidays every year. When I retired from teaching, I decided to do even more walking than usual, which is why I set up my own walking company. How does that work then? I will create tailor-made walking holidays for your ability and your interest. So, for example, if you'd like to spend seven days walking the coastal footpath and two days looking at Manx Heritage, then I can design the routes for you, supply you with the maps and sort out your accommodation. So regardless of whether you want to walk five miles or ten miles in one day, it can all be arranged with the plus side being that I will be able to transfer your baggage from one B&B to another. So, A, you won't have to carry your baggage, but also you'll be able to see a lot more of the island. Because that's a fantastic idea, because to be able to move bags from one place to another is, is, is a major hassle if you're going around places, isn't it? Yeah, it's very difficult. You either have to depend upon the goodwill of your landlady or pay an absolute fortune for a cab to transfer your luggage. Whereas if I do it for you, you can just walk with your day pack and enjoy the countryside that much more. The island is a fantastic place for walking, isn't it? Tell, me, tell us a bit more about it. It's extremely varied. If you think about the, the British Isles and condense it, you have everything here on, on the Isle of Man. And there's perhaps a little bit of Shropshire, a bit of Devon, a bit of Cornwall, um, the moors of Scotland. But the joy here is that you can get from one place to another 
very very easily and even within a day's walking you can be walking on the beach and half an hour later you can be up on on the moors and i found that there's a, an ample amount of footpaths as well that, that are just waiting for you to discover the footpaths are extremely well signposted we have hundreds and hundreds of miles of footpaths here even without an OS map, you can always just wander on the basis that if you start heading downhill, eventually you will get to the sea and you'll know where you are. And then you could turn right or left depending on where you started from. Well, that's right, yes. So if you get sunburned on one side, you know that you're always going in just one direction. <laughs> Talk about sunburned, we've got particularly good weather at the moment. Tell us about the weather on the island. It, it varies tremendously. And we are very influenced by the Gulf Stream, so it never gets extremely cold here, or rarely gets extremely cold here in the winter. And the summer we don't have the extremes of temperature that you have perhaps in the south of England. Uh, it's a very temperate climate. It does get wet, it does get windy, um, but that's part of the joy of walking and part of the joy of the Isle of Man is if it's wet and windy on one side, you go to the other side and it will be bathed in glorious sunshine. You're not going to have the lush green landscape if, if it doesn't rain a little bit, are you? No, um, it would look extremely parched if we had weather like we're having at, at the moment. <laughs> All the time. <laughs> All <yeah>. the time. <laughs> so there's also, if, if, I mean, lots of, lots of walkers like to, to look into history. Personally, I'm very interested in transport as well, so I know a lot of walkers are interested in that sort of thing, what railway walks. There's, there's quite a bit of history to, to discover on the island. Yes, we have the Manx Heritage Sites, uh, which trace history back down to the, the Vikings and the fight to keep the Isle of Man free from the English, Scottish and the Irish. And we also have the vintage railways. We have a steam railway, which serves the south of the island, the Manx Electric Railway, which serves the north of the island, and linking the two is the horse-drawn tram along Douglas Prom. And there is the, the very famous one mountain on the island. Yes, we have Snaefell, which is just a mountain. It's a beautiful walk up Snaefell. You can walk from Laxey up to the top of Snaefell in a day quite easily. So you can go from sea to mountain, or you can catch the mountain railway, and you can stop halfway if you wish to, to walk up part of it. So you can say you've walked up it? You can say that you've walked up the mountain. Uh, on a clear day from the top of the mountain you can see seven kingdoms, England, Scotland, Ireland, Wales, the Isle of Man, Neptune and heaven. So well, we're going to try that later, aren't we? Too? We're going to see if we, can, if we can manage to see all seven. Without being blown away? Yes. Tell me about the Isle of Man Walking Festival. The Walking Festival has been running for nine years now, nine very successful years. And we are unique with all the walking festivals in the British Isles because we provide entertainment most evenings so people come over and they have a complete package of walking and relaxation time. If people come across to the island, you look after them? Yes, um, from the moment they arrive, they arrive on the Sunday and we have a welcome dinner which enables them to meet their guides and uh, to find out a little bit more information about their routes and also if they want to change one of the walks which they have booked they can do so at that time. And in the evenings we have events ranging from Manx dancing to a Cayley which is the Manx equivalent of a barn dance. We finalise with the blister ball at the end, the final evening and on that day the guys or women who have walked the Radden Folly and the Coastal Footpath they receive a well-earned certificate that evening. Tell me about the, the, the variety of different walks that are available on the festival. We try and incorporate as many walks as possible to give a taste of the island. And there are walks which will go across the moors and the mountains. We have glen walks, 
and we have um, walks along the old heritage trails, for example, from Douglas to Peel, where a railway line used to run. Um, that will be a very relaxing walk, which is only about five miles, but it's um, very peaceful and beautiful wildlife along there as well. So how can people find out more information about the festival? And they need to go on to the Visit Isle of Man website, where we have a dedicated page about the walking festival. This year is our 10th anniversary of the Walking Festival. The date is the 12th of May. Because it is the anniversary, we're going to have a few more different and exciting walks, such as a Victorian walk to look at the architecture in Douglas, and that will finish in an open-top bus ride, some bat walks on, in some of the glens, and also some day walks on the Calf of Man. So if people want to find out more about uh, what you do, how can they do that? And I have a website which is lotsoflegswalkingholidays.co.uk. If you go onto the website, you'll see a taster of the types of walks that I do and contact details are on there as well. And if you'd like more information about Lots of Legs Walking Holidays or the Isle of Man Walking Festival, then you can find links, photos and videos on the show notes to this edition of the podcast on our blog which you can get to by clicking through from our homepage at walksaroundbritain.co.uk. Now, many of us will be taking the advantage of the cold weather to get out and give our walks a winter twist, and lots will be taking out a GPS unit to aid with navigation. But how many of us actually understand how they work? Well, Alexander MacDonald does. He's a GPS expert, having worked for manufacturers SatMap and several other navigation companies. And he joins me via Skype. Alex, thanks for coming on the podcast. Yeah, of course, no problem. So like I said, many of us use GPS units, but few of us actually know how it works. So obviously there's some sort of satellites in the sky and, and some magic happens. But can you explain to us a little bit of how it works? I'll start with the name. I mean, GPS stands for Global Positioning System. And rather like an iPod sort of becomes synonymous for an MP3 player, GPS is actually a global navigation satellite system. So it's almost like a brand name. Right. And GPS is actually run by the US government. So there's several other GNSSs, if you like, run by the countries. And in, in Europe, it's called Galileo. It was originally created for the military by the US government. And the military currently receive an enhanced and encrypted accuracy of 30 centimetres. Blimey. Whereas we, the general public, receive an accuracy of around about 2.76 metres. Even that's an amazing figure. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, obviously, it's global. So being able to sort of triangulate your position to that accuracy is, is amazing, really. So the GPS system has 24 satellites orbiting the Earth, and they all transmit radio signals. And those signals are actually fairly weak, but they can pass through non-solid objects like the cloud and, and glass, for example, but they can't pass through solid objects like buildings or water. Right. So in order for handheld devices to know where you are in the world, they triangulate your position by knowing where the satellites are that they're communicating and using their known position, it will work out where you are. So a handheld device needs to lock on and communicate with a minimum of four satellites in order for it to triangulate your position. That's a very brief explanation of how the actual system works. So the handheld device doesn't have a transmitter, does it? Just a receiver. Yeah. So it's, it's receiving the signals from the four satellites. Yep. How does it know where you are 
from those four satellites? Is it a, li- a little bit like sonar? Yeah, because it's communicating with the satellites, the satellites are telling the device where the satellites actually are. Hmm. And then, yeah, it's it's done with calculations of how long it's taking the you know the communication to take place. It's therefore able to to triangulate the position that way. So when you turn on the device at the start and it says searching for satellite, yeah. it's actually trying to find those four that it needs. That's correct. Yeah, it must be quite a difficult task to make this technical process user friendly for us walkers. Yes. Yeah. I mean, modern GPSs, all, all this sort of stuff's going on in the background, and certainly there's there's an awful lot of programming that's involved with the software in order to to get this working quickly. It's it's worth mentioning that there is a system out there called a satellite based augmentation system and that um, helps improve accuracy and the way that works is there's a a network of ground stations um, in Great Britain and those ground stations are surveyed to a very high accuracy and the GPS signal being sent to a handheld device is is checked for errors and it can um, communicate corrected data back to the GPS to improve the, the actual accuracy of where you are. That's a constantly updated accuracy. Yes, yeah, absolutely. And um, these these augmentation systems, again, there's various ones across the world, and the one in Europe is called EGNOS, E-G-N-O-S. And in the US, it's called um, WAS, W-A-A-S. So those are, are, are different systems that help improve the accuracy of, of the GPS signal. And you've got to add all these bolt-on services too in a device if you want to sell it around the world. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. There's certainly a lot of um, research and development that goes into that. GPS has been around for quite a while now. So there's quite a lot of information out there already about Galileo. So, yeah, there's certainly a lot to um, put into new software and things like that. So Galileo is the European version of GPS. Does it have any extra features with it being so new? I think that the accuracy is going to be better for Galileo. So GPS, as I said before, publicly is down to about 2.76 metres. And Galileo will be down to about two metres publicly. And the military signal is going to be around about 10 centimetre accuracy. Good grief. So that's that's obviously a bit of an improvement. And by its nature, Galileo, the, the satellites are going to be, because of the, the way they're being put into orbit, it's actually going to work better for northern Europe at higher latitudes. You know, it's just going to work better for northern Europe because of that. So it's more focused on Europe. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. And, you know, the GPS devices are going to have a lot more satellites to uh, to talk to now as well, because not only will they have the GPS satellites, but also all these Galileo ones as well. Will the current devices that we, we all have at the moment, will they, will they work with Galileo? Will they pick up the signals and be able to understand them? It will be down to the software. So with older GPS devices, if updates are made available for that particular device, then it should be able to pick up the Galileo satellite. So again, it will be it will boil down to, to the actual sort of software that goes into that. Ah, so that will depend on whether the original manufacturer will go back to those old devices and update them. Yeah, that's correct. Yeah. Now these standalone GPS units like Satmaps and Garmin's are they competing now against the apps for smartphones? I think so. Yeah, I mean the um, obviously the smartphone market is is becoming a very large competitor to dedicated GPS units. I think there's still a couple of very big advantages to having a dedicated GPS unit over a smartphone. And certainly one of those is battery life. Um, Because the GPS device is specifically made to to show your position on on top of a map, 
it, it does away with extra frills that a smartphone might have, and therefore you can get a much better battery life out of them. And another point about using a separate device is that it doesn't drain your smartphone's battery, which you might need for taking photos, as many people don't yeah. take separate cameras anymore now. Definitely, yeah. I think there's almost a, a bit of a safety aspect as well. I mean, certainly for walking and hill walking and things, if you go out with your phone and you're reliant on that for obviously your, your phone communication, but also your maps and your GPS, if you were to lose your phone or drop it off the side of a mountain, then you've lost your phone and your maps and your, your location device. So actually keeping them separate is, is a bit safer as well. Alex, many thanks for coming on the podcast to explain that. No problem. Thank you. There you go, the Ladybird Guide to GPS. Alan Hinks was the first Briton to climb all 14 of the world's mountains over 8,000 metres. At the end of last year, he released a book featuring some stunning photos from those 14 climbs, and he popped into the Walks Around Britain HQ in Doncaster just before Christmas for a cuppa and a chat. So Alan, it's not great to see you. Great to be here in Yorkshire as usual, in a bit further south in Yorkshire where I normally am, <laughs> but there's nothing wrong with lovely Donny. Tell us about the book. 8,000 metres. It's yes. finally come out, my book, and I'm, well, I'm happy with it. It's fantastic. The pictures look great, the copy's great. I'm getting great feedback from people who are enjoying it. A lot of people are getting it for Christmas and some people are having to wait till Christmas to read it and look through it, which I think is a bit sad, but uh, there you go. And uh, Yeah, so I'm happy with it. I mean, it's taken me so long to do it, which was a bit daft, but, you know, I went out to play too much. Is this taking too long to get to write it, you mean? Yeah, from when I had the commission from the publisher, who, and they've been great at Cicero and very understanding, um, it took me longer than it should have, but I have to admit, you know, I probably didn't take it that seriously initially and I just literally went out to play too much. I went into the hills instead of keeping myself indoors doing it. But, <laughs> you know, it was a labour of love and um, and I badgered away over it and, and picked out all the, you know, loads of good pictures and went over the copy and I'm happy with it, yeah. And I am told the copy's good. I've had lots of good feedback. The stories are good. But a lot of people are probably not reading the, the, the copy initially. They're flicking through it, looking at the pictures. Cause yes, because the pictures are fantastic. Yeah, and it's a coffee table book, so I can understand that. But, uh, you know, the, the copy is worth reading, so I'm told. Well, I think it is as well. <laughs> <laughs> so give us a flavour about what it's about, then. How, what, what sort of stuff are you talking about? The book essentially is about the 14 8,000ers. It's not about my whole mountaineering career. Um, it's a snapshot of the 8,000ers. There's only 2,000 words per 8,000 metre peak. Uh, so there's uh, 16 chapters. That's because there's an intro and an aftermath, or a, whatever you want to call it. Um, and, and so the intro is a mini biog, so to speak, 2,000 words, where it all began. And the aftermath is a bit like that. So each chapter then just deals with an 8,000er. And again, it's some of them are just a snapshot. You know, K2, I spent three years of my life trying to climb that, and there's only 2,000 words written there. And uh, so it's quite fast-moving, and uh, and I've had to pick out some of the best pictures, but uh, I've got that many pictures. I could do another book, and there'd still be great pictures, I'm sure. So uh, so it, and it's, it seems to be going down well. The publishers have had to reprint, and I think they're reprinting again, and... Uh, and it, you know it's available in all good bookshops, as they say, and Amazon and all that malarkey. So there you so, go. So, and if you haven't been lucky enough to get it for Christmas, it's certainly one that you could go out and buy yourself. Oh yeah, it's going to be available for quite a while, yeah, and uh, and, and in the shops for a long time to come, I hope. So, which of those mountains really give you the greatest buzz? I'm, I'm often asked questions like that. You know, which was my favourite? Which was my most dangerous? Which gave me the greatest buzz? I mean, in many ways, I always say K2, 
because when I first saw K2 in the early 90s, I thought, that's the mountain to climb. I was aware then and now, not many people have climbed it, and loads of people have been killed on it. It's a spectacular-looking peak. You know, it's not unlike the Matterhorn on Rosebery Top, you know, only much more impressive. You know, it sticks up as a solitary, sharp, pointy mountain like a shark's fin. So I guess I did dedicate three years of my life to K2 and finally climbed it. And I hadn't intended to do all 14 8,000ers then. Um, I'd only done a couple then. I think I'd done Shishapangma, Chuoyu, uh, Manaslu, um, that's three, Broad Peak. I'd done about four 8,000ers, so I think K2 must have been my fifth. But I I wasn't counting the 8,000ers then. I just focused on K2 as the challenge. And then after that, I got quickly headhunted to go as a cameraman on Everest. And then I knocked a couple more off and came to the realisation I'd got eight, eight thousand as done. That's when I decided to do them all. And a lot of others were memorable. And uh, particularly the last one, Kanch and Jungma, which again, I had a couple of goes at. Um, dedicated quite a lot of time to Kanch. And um, that's what I call Kanch and Jungma, affectionately Kanch. And it was a fantastic finale, a near-death experience, which you can read about in the book. <laughs> and... Um, and so Kanch means a lot in a way, in that it, was, it wasn't it was just, ooh, the last mountain and I knocked it off, you know, I nearly got killed on it. Well, as I did on a lot of the 8,000ers, I suppose. But, so it's a, it's a bit of a toss-up between K2 and Kanch, which is the most memorable, mm. really. It's not been repeated by anybody else, has it? All 14? Yeah. And no Brits have done all 14 yet. I'm still the only Brit that's climbed them all. I'm sure most people realise it was an Italian that did it first, Rhino Mesner. A pole second, Kukuchka was a friend of mine, and when he did his 14th, I did my first, we were together. Um, and, uh, and and various other nationalities have done it, um, and at the moment, yeah, I'm the first and only, only Brit. I always say I'm the only English speaker as well, you know, although there is an American done it, but I always joke, so they don't speak English, do they? And <laughs> there is actually an Australian done it now as well, but they, they, they don't speak they English. Speak <laughs> but that's a joke, because I do like the Americans and the Aussies, obviously. Um, sadly, there's still no French person done it, and um, I climbed three of these 8,000ers with one of my French friends. He was killed as well, and uh, and still no French person has done it. And there's about nine French people being killed. And, you know, any French person that does it will become virtually a household name in France, very famous. It's a big deal over there, just as it is for Mesner. He's a household name in Italy and very well recognised. You know, he's used in massive advertising campaigns and what have you. So it's quite amazing to me that you've done all of this and yet you still find wonder in places like the lakes and, and North Yorkshire and the like. And, and how, how does that work then? How can you have gone to all these, you know, these fantastic peaks of the world and still find wonder in, in what we have in England? Yeah, I do. And, and it's funny, even when I was climbing these mountains, not so much now, but certainly when I was climbing them, I'd be seen in the hills by people and they wouldn't come up and say, if they recognised me, they wouldn't come up and say, are you Alan Hinks? They'd often come up and say, what are you doing here? And I'm like, what do you mean, what am I doing here? I like the British hills, you know. And they, they said, well, surely they must pale into insignificance after all the Himalayan climbing you've done and so on. And I'm like, well, no, they don't really. You know, this is where it all started. This is where I love being... And you can still have an adventure in the British Hills, you know, where it all began for me in the North Yorkshire Moors and the Dales and the Lake District and obviously the other hills in Britain as well. But, yeah, I I just love it. You know, you can have a fantastic day out in the British Hills and that's where I like to be. I mean, they're they're safer than the 8,000ers, although you can get killed. I was avalanched and nearly killed in the Lake District a couple of years ago. And you can fall off rock climbing and so on and so forth. But, well, the 8,000ers, in a way, the ultimate challenge, really dangerous 
maybe that's why I like the British Hills. Mm. Old friends I can have fun with. And do you think that we are doing as much trying to get our children out into these kind of landscapes now? Because there's a big campaign now, isn't there, about trying to get our children out more. Do you think we've, we've stopped doing those kind of things? I think it is important to get young people, children out more, get anybody out more anyway, in, into the, doesn't have to be into the hills, just get out and do some exercise. But getting out to the hills is great. The, the sort of dichotomy is it the more we encourage people to go out in the hills, the fuller they're going to get. So from a selfish point of view, let's not encourage anyone else to go <laughs> in the hills. But I don't mind people in the hills. You know, some of my friends complain that they're on one of these popular Leighton Peaks, whether it be Cat Bells or Hell Velling, and there's too many people there. Now, I don't mind that, because I can go there and enjoy those other people who are obviously the same like mine and have a chat with them um, and it's a great buzz and it's a different buzz to being in, in a great bad enough football stadium or in a big city with loads of people it's a different sort of buzz and it's not thousands of people is it anyway um, but you can always get those mountains to yourself on a quieter day that you know I've been a pale belly on a quiet day or you can go somewhere else literally the next mountain along there'll be nobody mm. on it so, yeah, perhaps we should encourage more people to go into the hills, get fit and enjoy the, the countryside. It does do something for you. You know, I've just come back from London and it was, I mean, I love going to London, but it, the noise and the bustle and the hustle and the people and pavements are full, the roads are full, the sirens are always going off and it can drive you bonkers. I don't know how people can live there permanently. I really don't, you know. I mean, you can get that to a lesser extent in any other British city and big town, you know, and I live in a small village now and love being in the hills. And I think it does refresh you, going in the hills. I know it's not for everybody. Some people would probably hate it, and that's so that's that, you know. But visiting is a, is a good thing, isn't it? Yeah, but give it a try and just visit the hills. Um, you don't have to walk far, just visit the countryside. You know, it, it, it does enhance human life, in my view, getting out into the countryside, even if it's just the Bimbley countryside around where you live. Just get out in the woods and hills and valleys. You don't have to go to the top of Scarpell Pike or Ben Nevis or Snowdon. Just get out and enjoy a bit of fresh air in the countryside. And one of the great places to go when you're sort of getting out and to stay in the, in the countryside is there's the youth hostels, of course, which you do a lot of work with. Yep, I'm the first ambassador, I think, in its 83-year history for the YHA, and uh, and obviously they're great places to go and stay. I mean, they do have hostels in cities, uh, you know, some great ones in London, uh, but you can use the YHA and their hostels to get out into the countryside. There's loads of them positioned in brilliant places, um, so you don't have to spend a fortune in expensive hotels, you don't have to camp. You can go and uh, stay in a youth hostel and have a great time in the hills. And, and there's some there's some a misunderstanding that it is just for youths. Yeah, that that is a, is a bit of a problem in a way almost with the name the Youth Hostels Association. And um, but how can they rebrand? It's a great brand in a way. The YHA. It's mm. for anyone of any age. I'm not a youth any longer. Um, and the word hostel maybe doesn't sound as good as it should. You know, they're like mini hotels. A lot of them really. And uh, so it's just a matter of getting out and enjoying these great YHA properties that are positioned in superb locations and some of them are absolutely immaculate buildings as well some are owned some are off the national trust but some are absolutely fantastic buildings with superb outlooks across valleys and hills you know great to visit i mean there's one right next to the abbey in um, in whitby which is fantastic there's a brilliant one in grasmere and then there's that fantastic little black sail one right up in the hills in ennerdale so they've just got some amazing properties and amazing situated in amazing locations so what's your next challenge at the moment? What are you working on? Next? Well, my, my next challenge is to enjoy the winter because it hasn't been very cold yet and I'm waiting for the waterfalls to freeze so I can ice climb them, basically. <laughs> <laughs> Alan, thanks so much for coming. Cheers, it's a pleasure.
And as Alan says, his book, 8,000 Metres, Climbing the World's Highest Mountains, is available from all good bookshops and various online retailers too. There's some links on the show notes to this edition of the podcast on our blog. Well, that's the first 2014 edition of the podcast. We hope you're enjoying them, and if you've got any comments or suggestions, please tweet us, send us a message on Facebook, and pop us over a good old-fashioned email and let us know. Remember, to keep up to date with the podcast, you can subscribe to us on iTunes or on Audioboo. Until next time, thanks for listening, and happy walking.